And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And we continue our journey through this marvelous letter that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter 3. I want to invite you to stand if you can. Let's start in verse 2. Verse 2 through 11. Here's the word of the Lord. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Oh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here we go. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Oh, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, filthy garbage, in order that I may gain Christ that is, to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Oh, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Please be seated. Holy Father, we come before you as starving children. And you tell us that you are longing to feed us. If we who are evil give good gifts to our children, we don't give a snake or rocks, but we give bread, how much more you we will not give the Holy Spirit to help us understand, comprehend, and apply your Holy Word. So help us. We need your help. I need your help to preach. And this lovely church needs your help to listen. Speak to us. Change us. Transform us. Thank you that you are sovereign God. We pray for other churches in Salem. We pray that you will be blessing your people. Feed your flock here in Salem, Lord. Help your under-shepherds be faithful to you. And I pray that you will help us. Help the children here to calm, to listen. Help the older ones to cast upon you all anxiety 
and pay attention to what is the most important thing in our lives. And that is to know You, to hear Your voice. So please be with us. And we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. The Christian vocabulary is very rich. Think about the words that we use, the words that we have in the Bible. It's a beautiful vocabulary, right? Think about words such as redemption, atonement, glory, grace, justification. Those are beautiful words. Adoption, reconciliation. Wrath, holiness, those are beautiful, powerful words. But I fear that if we ask many Christians to define and apply biblically most of the words that we use and use in our music, I believe that very few would be able to actually define biblically and apply correctly all this beautiful terminology that we use. So, if you ask most churchgoers to define redemption, what is redemption? What is regeneration? What is faith? What is mercy? What is grace? What is the gospel? What is peace? I believe that very few would be able to actually give a correct biblical answer and how to apply these things into our lives. And as we come to Philippians chapter 3, especially in verse 9, we are faced with some of these very precious words that we use very often in our Christian journey, and yet very few know what they actually mean. So Paul talks about in Philippians 3, 9, about faith. What is faith? Righteousness. What is righteousness? In Christ, union with Christ. But what is union with Christ? Law. God. Would you be able to define these words and apply them in your lives? You see, the problem is not just being ignorant, not understanding. The problem is if we don't know if we don't understand the meaning, the profundity of these words, we cannot apply them into our lives. That's the problem. The problem is not a massive head with all the understanding of these words and terminology. The problem is the heart. Because, because God used truth to enlarge our hearts, to increase our affection for Christ. So that's why we must grasp and understand this thing. So my prayer is, as we are walking through Philippians chapter 3, today in verse 9, the, the knowledge, the understanding of righteousness, faith, would enlarge our hearts to love Christ more, to treasure Him more, consequently love His people more, love holiness more. Because that's the life of the Christian. To know, to know Christ. Amen? And to know Him is to love Him. 
So that's my prayer. So let's go to Philippians chapter 3. This is a beautiful, it's a masterpiece about the Christian life. Very, very deep theologically. We learn a lot about Paul and we learn a lot from Paul. We learn about Paul as he's giving his testimony and we learn from Paul. And I agree with Frank Thielman in his commentary in Philippians. He says, this passage is so rich theologically that the greatest challenge in interpreting is to remain within its theological mainstream and to avoid traveling too far down other interesting but tributary brooks. Tell me about that, Thielman. As you're studying this passage, so many roads, where am I going? But here is, the primary point is clear. Righteousness before God on the final day comes solely from God. And any attempt to add requirements of human invention to what God has freely given amounts to a rejection of the gospel. So my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would help us to remove our sandals because we stand on holy ground here and walk the orthodox path, the right path. I don't want to be going in different directions. I want to stay here where Paul wants us to stay because it's very easy to start deviating and going to so many other roads because it's so deep here. Uh, here's the outline, and that, uh, that's what we have been walking through the past few Sundays. We are looking at Paul's testimony, and we saw that every Christian must have a testimony, and every Christian's testimony is basically divided in three parts. Life pre-conversion, before conversion, conversion, and then post-conversion. So every Christian must have a testimony with these three parts. And if someone asks you, what's your testimony, and you don't know how to give a testimony, that probably means that you are not a Christian. If you cannot look at your life before Christ, when Christ showed up, and your life now, most probably, you are still lost. Amen? So that's where we are. We are walking through it. Remember, Paul is an example for all those who believe. So we saw Paul's life before conversion, then we saw in verse 7 Paul's life at conversion, and now we are journeying through Paul's life after conversion. And you remember, I, I hope you remember why Paul is giving his testimony. And starting verse 2, he knows, he's a very wise pastor, Paul, he knows that false teachers are coming. Because these false teachers have been coming to different churches that Paul had planted. So he knows that pretty soon they're going to be journeying to Philippi. Especially because the church in Philippi is a healthy, beautiful church. And these false teachers are known as Judaizers. And you remember in Acts 15 verse 1, uh, primarily they were Pharisees who professed to be Christians. And then they would go to the churches and start demanding the Christians to do what? Oh, yes, Christ alone, yes, faith alone, yes, but, but, there is more. 
I understand Paul and his eagerness to teach about Christ alone and grace alone. But Paul is missing something. Maybe because he doesn't have the pedigree that we have, he's missing that, hey, we need to keep the yoke of Moses. We need to keep the knife of Abraham. And Paul now gives his testimony as a guardrail to protect the church. Remember, he says, oh, be aware of these dogs, the flesh cutters, evildoers. Because all of their teachings about boasting your flesh, self-righteousness, as if you can appear before God and say, yes, Christ was good, but look at my keeping of the law. So Paul presents himself as a test case. He shows, here, you want to see what a, a blameless, a righteous person looks like? Look at me. And he starts giving his own testimony. And he shows how the grace of God upon his life will protect the church from false teachings. Especially false teachings related to man's works. You do it. Or Christ did 90%, now you need to do 10%. Christ did 90-90%, but now you need to do the 1%. Christ did 90-90.99999%, but you just need to do that 0001%. Paul says, look at me. Look at me. And you see that Christ did the 100%. It's all of grace. But that's what Paul is doing. And remember verse 7, comes the... Major contrast. He's talking about his life before Christ. And then in verse 7, Oh, but, but when Christ met with me, I counted, I counted all those gains as loss. And then remember verse 8. We saw the last time we were together. I'll go back here. And I don't have here, but verse 8, you have in your Bible. And he says, oh, not only in the past, but I count now in the present. Because some people might say, oh, yes, Paul, I know that you counted in the past, but do you regret just a little bit? You became so radical. You lost your inheritance. You lost your friends. You lost your position in society. You lost family members. Do you regret just a little bit? Would you be less radical? Would you be less narrow-minded? Just a little bit, Paul. And he says, ha, ha, ha. I not only count as lost, present, but I count as scubala. Filthy garbage. All that these false teachers want as treasure, I give to them as, so they can feast as dogs with the garbage and rotten flesh, I give to them so they can feast on them. And then he gives the reason, verse 8. In order that, that's the reason, in order that, what? I may gain Christ. And here is very important. You cannot gain Christ by keeping the other things. Christ will not come and marry a polygamous person. You must get rid of everything. It's Christ alone. And now, starting verse 9, 
Starting verse 9, Paul continues developing what he means by gaining Christ. And that's what we have in verse 9. It's Paul continuing his, his description or now letting us know what he means by gaining Christ. In order that I may gain Christ, the ESV has, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. But that comes from the law. Not the one that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And you see there, look in your Bible, you can see in verse 9, that I may gain Christ, and then you have an end, be found in Him. I think a better translation would be that is. The Greek word there would be better exegetical, meaning it's giving the, the information what Paul means by to gain Christ. To gain Christ, that is. He's explaining now what it is to gain Christ. And he says, and to be found in Him. But wait, Paul, you keep talking about being in Christ you are telling us that the mark of the Christian is union with Christ, to be in Christ. And now you are saying that you want to be found in Christ? Are you not already in Christ? And Paul the answer, yes. I want to be in Christ today, tomorrow, and forevermore. I just want to be found in Christ. And I think Paul is thinking here, not so much about the present, but about the future. The day when everyone, either when you died or either if Jesus Christ comes back, everyone will stand before the throne of God, the judgment seat. And Paul is saying, on that day, I want to be found in Christ. Remember, that's something that Paul keeps talking in the letter. I might die. I don't know. Christ might return the day of the Lord. But when that takes place, I want to be found in Christ. And you know that because Paul tells the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Look at how Paul says, Everyone will appear before the judgment seat of God. And you're going to give an account. So Paul is looking to that day and he says, Ha ha, when the day come, I want to be found in Christ. You see, some might argue, but I thought I was already justified. Yes, there is the inauguration, but this is the consummation of our justification. We have already been Born again. Are we not a new creature? In Christ? Yes. Are we fully? Not yet. The same with justification. We have already been justified in Christ, but you wait for the fully consummation of the justification. And when we stand there, the Lord will look at us, and our works will demonstrate whether or not we are in Christ. That's what Paul is saying right here. And he says, when, when that day come, I want to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. When I appear before the judgment seat of God, I want Him to look at me and not see me, but see whom? Christ Jesus. 
That's the complete opposite of the unbeliever. John tells us in Revelation chapter 6 that the unbeliever, when he appears before the judgment seat of God, he's going to say, follow us, O mountains and rocks, and hide us from the face of He who sits on the throne and of the Lamb. That's the completely opposite. But not Paul. He doesn't want to hide from Christ. He wants to hide himself in Christ. That's what he longs for. That's his desire. Not to hide from, but to hide in. As we sang, Rock of ages, clap for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That's Paul. Just want to be found in Christ. And notice the, the, the voice of the verb here. The voice is passive. Be found in Christ. Be found in Christ. That's important. We call these divine passives. It's what God does on our behalf. Do you remember, was Paul looking for Jesus? Just to kill him if he could. Was Paul trying to find Jesus to worship him? No. What happens? Christ found him. He was found by Christ. And he says, in the same way that first time when I was found out by you, I want to be found in you. On the final day. That's what Paul is saying here. And every true Christian testimony must have this change of verbal voice. From the active, as Paul was talking about himself, to the passive, divine passive. But God found me. God changed me. God transformed me. Amen? That's very important. Because you hear so much of Christian testimony, it's all about the person's doing. My doing, my doing, my doing. And every true Christian testimony, there must be a shift. And that shift moves to, He did. It was done by Him. This is my story. This is my soul. What? Praising my Savior. That's the Christian testimony. It's not about me. It's Christ's story. My story becomes His story. Amen? So that must be. When you're listening to someone's testimony, you've got to make sure that there is the shift. When that person was found by Christ, if suddenly the story changes, and it's no longer about you, but it's Christ Jesus, the gospel story. And that's what Paul is doing right here. In order that I may be found where? Where does Paul want to be found? In Him. In Christ. And he, I encourage you to go, maybe today, go through Philippians and try to find every time Paul used the word in Christ. And you're going to see that's one of... It's the primary way that Paul describes a Christian. Is the one who is in Christ. Oh, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ. Oh, for I'm certain that nothing can separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus. So that's Paul's major theological description of a Christian. One 
And for Paul, there are two races. Okay? Human race is divided in two according to the Bible, according to Paul. You have the Adamic race, the race in Adam, and you have the Christian race, those in Christ, those who belong to Christ. That's, that's Paul's understanding of human race. There is no black, white, yellow, brown, uh, whatever you want to know. In Adam, in Christ. In Adam, people have the garments of self-righteousness, fallen humanity. In Christ, you have the garments of Christ. That's righteousness. That's how Paul defines race and humanity. And then he goes on, he says, and here start seeing the a repetition of a word that's very important that started in verse 6, as to righteousness under the law. And now look at here, that is to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which, we could say, the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul, Paul now, he has two types of righteousness. Can you see that in your text? Can you see that in the Bible? So I'm not creating. There are two types of righteousness. The righteousness from man... That's achieved by what? Obedience to men's own, own efforts. And then you have the righteousness from God that's acquired by faith. Or through faith. That's what Paul is doing here. So Paul is talking about righteousness. And righteousness, one of those words, remember in the beginning of the sermon that I said there are so many words that we use and they're important words. And a lot of times we don't know what they mean. Righteousness. Such a powerful and important word, especially throughout the whole scope of Scriptures, but in particular for Paul. For Paul, righteousness, justice is the same thing. Justification is a major gospel theme. Remember the letter to the Romans? He's writing that letter to let the church in Rome know that he wants their support. It's, it's, it's a missionary letter to help that church know about him so how they can support him if he comes to Rome and goes to Spain to preach the gospel. And Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, for the Jews first, for the Greeks, for the barbarians, for the Gentiles second. For... In the gospel, what? What is revealed in the gospel? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel? Because that's the power of God. And why is it the power of God? Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Doctrine of righteousness is so important that Paul calls an anathema. Let these people go to hell in Galatians 1. Why? Because they're messing up with the doctrine of righteousness. Justification. That's how important for Paul righteousness is. But if I were to ask you, what does it mean, righteousness? We read Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and that was counted as righteousness. What does it mean, righteousness? an important 
themes through Scripture. So, let me help you. And I'll help you by quoting a theologian here, Jeffrey Niehaus. He says, Righteousness throughout the Bible means only one thing. Conformity to a standard. Exactly right. Righteousness is conformity to a standard. So when a person does not conform to that standard, he is condemned. Righteousness throughout the Bible means only one thing, conformity to a standard. In matters of biblical righteousness, the standard is who? God, His nature, to which He is always faithful, and to which humans may be faithful in some degree with divine help. So God's righteousness, His faithfulness, conformity to His own nature, includes, but it's not limited to His covenant faithfulness. So, what is a righteous person? A righteous person would be one who perfectly conforms to God's standard. And what is God's standard? His, his perfection, His own nature. That's very important. God is always righteous because He's always faithful to the standard of His own nature. God doesn't change. He's always the same. So, to help you, what is justification? Justification is... In English, we have justice and righteousness, and sometimes we, we try to divorce the two as if justice is more a forensic, more a legal, and righteousness is more a ethical. No, no, no. In the Bible, they are together. It's forensic. It's legal. Justification is the legal declaration and affirmation that someone is already in conformity to God's holy standard. That's very important, brothers and sisters. Justification is not to make you righteous, but it's declaring you that you already conform to that standard. Amen? That's important to think through this. If you go to a court, the judge will not make you righteous. He's declaring you because you conform to the laws. The same with the Christian life. Justification is the declaration that we are already conforming to God's standard. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the language here. It's the opposite of justification, condemnation. God's nature, God's standards is demonstrated, you think about the Bible, little by little, as He's revealing Himself through the different covenants, through all the Scriptures. So He reveals some of His character in Genesis, Exodus, you have the Mosaic Covenant, Davidic Covenant, and God is revealing some of His character until He finds the culmination in whom? Jesus Christ. He perfectly shows what the character of God is and He perfectly conforms to that character. That's why He's the righteous one. He alone can conform to God's standard, that is, His nature, His character. And the truth is that all men 
need this righteousness from God. You think about righteousness. It's the opposite of sin. If righteousness is conformity to God's standard, what is sin? It's the rejection of God's standard. Amen? Are you following there? If righteousness is conformity to God's standards, what is sin? Rejection of God's standards. So sin, and Paul tells that in Romans chapter 5, he says transgression, he equates with unrighteousness. Through the transgression of one man, all became unrighteous. So by nature, man is born under what? The condemnation. The world lies under the condemnation. Why? Because we are born in sin. We are born unrighteous before God's eyes. Nobody is born righteous before God. Nobody. Nobody is born, oh, conforming to God's holy and perfect standards. No. Because of sin, because of Adam's fall, as the head of humanity, everyone is born under condemnation. That's very important. That's what Paul is arguing in Romans. If you read Romans, chapters 1 through 3, through three you see that he's describing the universality of unrighteousness. Gentiles first, the Jews later, and then his conclusion is, what shall we conclude? That everyone, all, is unrighteous. There is not one righteous, Paul says. And this unrighteousness is pervasive, affects the Jews and the Gentiles, and affects all parts of our body. That's why he says in Romans 3, their mouths, their hands, their feet, their eyes, their hairs, it's all contaminated with unrighteousness. And that's why Paul is so eager to preach the gospel, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed to save people. So, now you know what righteousness is and how important it is. Because everyone will stand and will appear before the throne of God, the judgment seat, and God will say, wait a second, here's my standard. How do you conform to my standards? And because of sin, apart from Christ, no one can conform perfectly to that standard of righteousness. So Paul tells us here, look at the first type of righteousness that he gives, is man's righteousness. That's the inappropriate, improper, deficient righteousness. And I'll be found in him, not, 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 not having a righteousness of my own. And he describes this imperfect, insufficient, improper, inappropriate righteousness with two qualities. Coming from his own and from obedience to the law. And Paul is saying the law is insufficient and my obedience is 
tainted with sin, is marked with sin. Therefore, there is no way, no way for me to appear before God with my self-righteousness. Remember that parable in Luke chapter 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember that parable? Luke chapter 18. A Pharisee. Do you remember Paul was a Pharisee? Do you remember what? And Jesus tells us. It's about people who are trying to be righteousness through their own actions. And the Pharisee, he, he's praying, Oh God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Look at all the things that I do. That's self-righteousness. That's the righteousness of men. And then you have the tax collector. And what is the tax collector doing? Beating his chest, mourning. And what is he saying? Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. According to your faithful promises, forgive my sins. Because I cannot do that on my own. And Jesus says, who went home justified? Do you remember? The tax collector. And that's what Paul is giving us here. Self-righteousness will never, will never bring justification before God. And sadly, so many people, so many people think that their deeds of righteousness in the end will outweigh their bad deeds and they will be justified. Self-righteousness stinks. Self-righteousness is like bad breath in God's sight. Smells bad, stay away. I will not accept, I will not hug you and kiss you. That's self-righteousness in God's sight. So Paul says, I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I want to... Nothing, nothing whatsoever connects you a righteousness that comes from my own hands. That's what Paul is saying. Away from me, self-righteousness. But there is a... A different type of righteousness. And you see that because he contrasts here. But, look at the contrast. But that righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here is the the righteousness that that Paul longs for. Not his own, but the one that comes from God. What the reformers call an alien righteousness. Extra nostrum, outside us. It's the righteousness of God Himself. That's what Paul is longing for. And honestly, uh, one scholar said that this verse, this, these words here, is just like a hornet's nest of controversy. And the reason why it's a hornet's nest of controversy is because of the construction. And it's amazing. You could, you could translate as, Paul says, but that which comes through, you could translate as the faithfulness of Christ, what they call the subjected genitive. The faithfulness of Christ, you could translate as an objective genitive, and that would be like most translations have. Faith in Christ, 
Or it could be a genitive of source, Christ's faith, the faith of Christ. And I'm not going to spend time developing this. I don't think I need to do that right now. Uh, if you want to know more, I'm glad to walk through these things with you, recommend some good books. Uh, Thomas uh, Schreiner, Brian quoted earlier, he has a wonderful book about justification by faith. Uh, he goes through all these things, and I have other books that I can give to you. I'm not going to spend time here. Uh, I, I will adopt a, the objective genitive. And I think they all are true. Because it is through the faithfulness of Christ, and it is the faith that belongs to Christ. This new faith that Christ brings. But I will go through, as we have in your Bibles, the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And you have other places where Paul talks about faith in Christ. For example, Ephesians 1.15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Or Colossians 1.4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ. And there are other texts. But I need to keep track here. You see, that's why it's so hard. You can move and, oh, let's talk about the new perspective on Paul and uh, N.E.T. Wright, E.P. Sanders, and I don't want to do that. It's very basic. Paul is contrasting two righteousness, the righteousness of man, the righteousness of God, and two ways of acquiring. One is by our own hands, and the other one is by the instrumentality of faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Faith is the instrument that God uses to receive His righteousness. Okay? Faith does not justify you. You're not justified because of faith. You're declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. You are justified because of your union with Christ. Are we good? You are not justified because of faith. You are justified because of Christ's righteousness. Faith is the instrument that God uses for you to receive that garment of righteousness. But the Bible uses the illustration of righteousness as garment, as we will see. When you think about man's righteousness, it's him himself Stitching up, sewing his own garments. Faith is just receiving that garment from God Himself. And one important question here would be, what is faith? You see, that's something we always talk in the Christian life, faith. If somebody was to ask you, David, can't, what is faith? You guys talk about faith, saving faith, faith alone, but what is faith? How would you answer that? Most people say faith is believing. Right? Faith is believing. But James tells us that even the demons believe in Shredder. So there is a faith that even the demons have. There is a type of believing. There will be a lot of people in hell right now and in the future who in one sense believe that there was Jesus. So what is faith? I'll help you. When we first, Brian read here, Genesis 15, do you remember? And Abraham what? Abraham what? 
worked. Abraham believed God. That's the, the first appearance of what we have this doctrine of faith. And in the Hebrew, the verb there, Amon. Can you hear? Amon. From where we get what? Amen. Amen. That's the verb that, Paul, that is being used in the Old Testament and then now Paul brings to the New. What is true? Amen. Something. It's a foley agreement. It's ownership. Yes. I agree. I make it my own. That's what you amen something is throughout the Scriptures. When we amen, we are taking ownership, embracing, agreeing with what was said. So when, so, when I'm preaching, someone says, Amen. What is he doing? Yes, I agree. I take ownership. That's exactly what we see here. So, biblical faith is in fact agreement with what God is doing. And that's why it's so close to righteousness, which is conformity to God's standard or nature. It's not just intellectual assessment. It's ownership of what God is doing. When I believe in or put my faith in Jesus Christ, I actually agree and I own or make my own what God has done, is doing and promises to do in Christ for me. I conform to God's way of seeing the truth or to His standard of, perce- of perception and affirmation. To amen throughout the Scriptures is much more than just amen. You see, we think that amen, it's up to me, and if I say whatever, it's just a, a verbal expression of something. Biblically speaking, amen. Is taking ownership, is receiving, making my own. So, for example, Deuteronomy 27, as Moses and the priests they're reading the curses of the law on Mount Ebal, do you remember they're reading the curse of the law? And how do the people respond? Amen. We take ownership. And if we sin, yes, we must receive this curse. That's what Amen is. I agree, I take ownership. It's true. And that's all we see right here. That's why faith and repentance are inseparable. Because when I take hold, when I agree with what God is doing, what God is revealing about Himself, when I'm taking ownership of that, I consequently need to turn my back on the other things. Do you see? If I'm saying... Amen. Yes, Lord. I receive. I have to turn my back to the other things. That's why there is no faith without repentance. With the turning away. With disagreeing. With disconnecting myself from the other things. Hmm. So Paul says, In order that I may gain Christ, be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is saying, the only way for a sinner to stand in perfect conformity to God's standards 
is by saying, Amen to Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying. But you say, Amen, Amen to Christ. I need to say, Amen to my own unrighteousness. That's why it's saving faith. I'm agreeing with God's revelation. Here's how a person is justified. is when I hear the gospel. I hear the gospel, but the good news must have a bad news. And what is the bad news? There is nothing in me that can bring salvation. There is nothing in me that can make myself stand righteous before God. So when I hear the gospel and I hear the truth about me, my sins, my iniquity, my rebellion, my anger, my hostility towards holiness, I don't try to argue, oh yes, but just, just a little bit. There is a little part of my heart that's still good. No, I say, Amen. Yes, apart from Christ, wretched man that I am, apart from Christ. And at the same time, I have this revelation of the righteousness of God that's revealed in the Gospel. In Christ Jesus. And I see the beauty of Christ. And I see His righteousness. And I say, Amen. Yes, I take you. I embrace you. That's saving faith. That's what demons and people in hell don't have. Oh, yes! There's Jesus and God, the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of people with really sound theology, but who never truly embraced Christ, said amen to their own depravity, their own need of God's righteousness. Well, that's what Paul is saying, what faith is. And Paul says that's faith alone in Christ alone. There are only two types of religion in the world. Amen? Man's religion and God's religion. Man's religion, self-righteousness. And you can see all other religions in the world is about you doing something. You've got to do something. Christianity is the only religion where it's done. It's done. Complete. Finished. And that... And what Paul is saying here goes completely contrary to what we see in our culture. You ask people, do you, do you, think, do you think you will be in heaven? Yes. Why? Oh, you know why? Because the scales of heaven are so perverted that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. And God will look at me and say, yes, you had some bad things, but all the good things you did, oh, how I love you, come. That's how people see. That's why everyone who dies is in heaven. Have you noticed that? That's what we call justification by death. Everybody who dies is in heaven. I never hear people talk about people in hell. So you go to the funeral, this horrible person, nasty person, and suddenly everybody, oh, he's up there looking at us and smiling. Why? Because he dies, suddenly he's in heaven? That's how we see. 
And that's what unrighteousness is. We are unrighteous even in our view of things. Even our view of things do not conform to God's view of things. And the other one is among many Christians who think that the Jews, according to the flesh, they're the special people of God, and they're going to be saved no matter what. And Paul is a clear example. He says, look at me. Talk about blamelessness of a Jew. And yet, apart from Christ, I would be in hell. So there is no Jewish person, according to the flesh, that will be in heaven if he has not said Amen to Christ and embraced Christ Jesus. So, Paul is very clear. There are those in Adam, those in Christ. And that's why he tells, he tells the people in Rome, put on, put on on the Lord Jesus Christ, as if it was a garment of righteousness. Put on Jesus Christ. Remove the Adamic garments. Put on Christ. Take His robe of righteousness. And that's something that we see through all these Scriptures. It's this relationship between being righteous with the imagery of a robe. As if now you have been accepted. You can get this robe of righteousness. Remember Adam and Eve, they sin. What is the first thing that they try to do? Garments with fig leaves. And they put together. They're ashamed. They realize now that they sinned. They fell short of God's standards. And what is the next thing that they try to do? Hide from God. That's the opposite of Paul. Paul wants to be found in Christ. They're hiding, hiding from God. Because they know now that those filthy, weak garments that they made with their own hands will not suffice. So God comes. And what does God do? He makes the garments. And He says, if you are to be restored, it has to be according to My standards to my doing, to my righteousness. And He makes them garments. As if He's clothing them again and commissioned them again to go. Yes, no longer in the Eden. And then you go to Exodus. And God tells all the details of how the Levites are to be dressed and how their garments are supposed to look like. Why? Because the Levites come into the presence of God. And to come into the presence of God, you don't come the way you want. You've got to come close the way that God wants you. With His own standards of garments. Isaiah goes further and he talks about man's righteousness with the picture of garments. And the language is pretty strong. Filthy. Bloody stained garments. That's the language that Isaiah used to talk about man's righteousness. So when you think that you are doing good, that your hands have accomplished something, remember Isaiah. We all have become like the unclean. Our deeds of righteousness is a nasty piece of cloth. 
Dennis Johnson says, The people's best efforts at keeping God's command fell so short that even their righteous deeds only displayed their defilement like a blood-stained garment. And this imagery continues through the Scripture. So we see Jesus as He's giving a parable of a banquet. And this king invites people to come and people reject and He brings some other people to the banquet. And you remember that the king realized that there is someone in that party and how is he dressed? Huh. Where are the garments proper for a banquet? Ah, ah, ah. He has no answer. What does the king do? Cast him to the outer darkness. You don't come into the presence of the king without the garments that he requires. The prophet Zechariah. There's a beautiful passage in Zechariah chapter 3. You can open there if you want. Zechariah chapter 3. One of the last prophets. One of the last books of the Old Testament. In chapter 3. He says then. He showed me Joshua the high priest. And the high priest here is representing the nation. Of Israel. God's people. Under the old covenant. And he showed me Joshua the high priest. Standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan. Satana. The accuser is standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua is standing before the angel, clothed with what? A filthy garment. That's why Satan is accusing him. Look at his garments. There's no garments of righteousness. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with your holy vestments. And then you keep reading, and you see who is going to accomplish that. And he says that the servant, the servant will accomplish this. And it's fascinating because Isaiah, in Isaiah 61, as Isaiah is speaking of this new covenant that's coming, Isaiah says, I will rejoice greatly in, in, in the Lord. My soul shall shout in exultation in my God. Look at that. For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Huh. The new covenant... You'll be marked by people being clothed with the garments of righteousness. But it's fascinating because Isaiah tells us how this garment will be provided. And that's in Isaiah 53. The servant that Zechariah spoke about. The suffering servant. The righteous one. So we read after all the suffering and death. It says in Isaiah 53:11, Out of the anguish of his soul, the servant, he shall see and be satisfied. Look at that. By his knowledge. Remember we talk about the knowledge according to the biblical definition? Experiential. By his knowledge shall the righteous one 
My servant, make many to be declared what? Righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Now move to the life of Paul. Paul is on the road to Damascus, persecuting Christians. And who shows up? Who shows up? You can go and read Acts 22. Acts 22, Paul is giving his testimony once again. And he mentions something that we don't see in Acts chapter 9. And that's the beauty. The other testimonies complement one another. And there in Acts 22, Paul tells us that Ananias came to him and Ananias told him what was taking place. And Ananias said, Brother Saul, now he calls him brother, the guy who was persecuting everyone. Brother, we have been united in Christ. Brother Saul, receive your sight. The God of our fathers appointed you to know His will. And what is His will? To see the righteous one. Who is the righteous one? But the servant of Isaiah 53. That's whom Paul saw. So that blinding, blinding light actually opened his eyes to see the righteous one. And no wonder... Because Paul sees the righteous one. He sees his unrighteousness. And at that moment, on the road to Damascus, as the righteous one appears to Paul, shows up, I found you, Paul. You are mine now. He can see the righteous one. And at the same time, he sees his own unrighteousness. Oh, apart from Christ, wretched man that I am, unclean. And at the same time, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And he realizes all those sacrifices, all that law-keeping, all that blood spilled on the altars was pointing to Christ Jesus. And what does he do? <laughs> Amen! Amen to my own unrighteousness and amen to His righteousness. And He embraces Christ Jesus. Paul's trusted foundation of legal righteousness collapsed beneath his feet on the Damascus road when he suddenly saw himself to be the chief of sinners. But in the same instant, he received through faith in the Son of God the new and durable foundation of righteousness, freely given by God's grace. Now and forever after, Paul knew himself to be accepted by God for Christ's sake. That's all you're seeing. Behold him there, the risen Lamb. Spotless righteousness. That's what Paul, that's who Paul saw there, the risen lamb, the perfect righteousness that he so desperately needed, and he embraced that. He took ownership. 
And every Christian, when he meets the risen Christ through the preaching of the gospel, realizes how unrighteous he is, how incapable of conforming to God's perfect standard he is, and how unable of standing before the presence of the perfect God and say, oh, look at my righteousness. No, no, no. When you meet with the risen Christ, you are unable, you are incapable of declaring yourself to be righteous. That's the truth. There is no way for you to meet with the reason, with the righteous one, and still think that you are righteous. When you meet the reason Christ, the righteous one, you say, Amen, Amen to my iniquities, to my unrighteousness, and Amen, I embrace this righteous one. So, let me ask you, have you met the righteous one? Have you met the righteous one? I'm not asking if your parents, if other church members have met him. I'm asking you, have you met with the righteous one? In a way that you look at your life and you say, Amen, I'm unclean, I'm wretched apart from you. I need you, I need your righteousness, I need your cross. Have you? Whose garments are you wearing today? Whose robes are you wearing today? If this ceiling collapsed over our heads, we all die. If when we leave here, get in a car accident and you die. Whose garments are going to be wearing to stand before the judge? Oh, look at me! So many years in church! Baptized at an early age. All the good things I have done. Or are you going to say, just like we sang, naked, I come to you. I need your garments. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross, I cling. I say, Amen. There is my righteousness. So, the Lord has been very merciful to you today. And He's given you time to run to Christ. Run to Him. Run to Him. Embrace Him. Say, Amen. Amen. As Romans 7 says, Oh, in Adam... Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Chapter 8. Oh, now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So run to Christ. Embrace Him. And let this be your testimony. Oh, that I lose everything and to gain Christ and to be found in Him. Every Christian must declare that out of the bottom of his heart. Oh, not my righteousness. Not my righteousness. It's filthy. It's stinky. But the righteousness of Christ. Lord, we come before You and we thank You. We thank You for Your love and Your care and Your mercy. We thank You for Your faithfulness. 
And we declare that apart from Christ, we are nothing. We are wrath-deserving children of hell. But in Christ, in Jesus, and in Christ alone, through the Amen, through the Amen, we are received We are clothed with robes of righteousness. And just like the Father in the parable of Luke 15, You run to receive us and bring us to Your home. So help us. Help us to be thankful for the righteousness of God. Not our own righteousness but the righteousness of God that's revealed, manifested in Christ Jesus and is received by faith. Help us to be a church. A church of Amen. We receive, Lord, nothing that our hands have done. We simply receive from You. Be merciful to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.